This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Today we're going to get back into the main track of what we've been uh, covering. This is kind of the end of the first half of the the class, the course, which is some more general topics about missions. So we spent some time looking at the Great Commission. Uh, we talked about what the mission really is, especially in this era when um, just about anything can be done under the name of missions. We talked about what, what a missionary is, and then uh, last time that, um, that I was here, we were talking about the missionary pattern that we find in Acts. And so today, we're just going to take kind of a bird's eye view, called this lesson, To the Uttermost Part, Missions, History, and the Current Prospect. And so what I want us to do is just to kind of look at how this has played out in history since the events we've talked about. So we've been focusing exclusively on the biblical um, basis for this, Jesus' command to his disciples, and how that actually played out in the biblical record in the book of Acts. And so today, I love history, and I hope that this will be interesting to you, even if history is not your thing, because this is how God has been working in history. But before we get into the, the history part of it, I want us to think about this, the mandate for world evangelism. We entitled this, um, this lesson, to the uttermost part. And so in the Great Commission, we do find some words that apply to the scope of what Jesus wanted his disciples to do. And there were, there were several words that we find in there. And in the Great Commission, we find words about the scope starting from the specific, very specific, all the way to very, very general. And so the most specific term we find is in Mark. If we remember the uh, Great Commission in Mark, uh, the go, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And I put the Greek word there, but this is just the basic idea of a created being. That's very specific, isn't it? Alright, so every person in the world. Let's back out a little bit. We find a phrase in Matthew and Luke, all nations. And the Greek word there is ethnos. Ethnos. What, what, what English word do you think we might get, that, get from that Greek word? Ethnic, ethnicity. Okay, so it's translated nations, but we're not talking about like nation states like Russia, China, the United States of America. We're talking about people groups here, ethnicities. And so... God, Jesus told them, you need to tell every person, and then back out a little bit, you need to, to get to every people group, each ethnicity. Another, verse we, another word we find, this is also in Mark, go ye into all the world. And this is the Greek word, cosmos. Cosmos, which has the idea of the whole world system, the inhabited world. Okay, so that's, we're getting very broad here. We've got individuals, we've got specific nations, and we've got uh, just the, the entire world system. And if that wasn't broad enough, in Acts we find the phrase, the uttermost part of the earth. Earth here, gay, gaia, 
we're talking about the globe, the actual physical earth. So every single part. So this is very, very comprehensive. Does anyone know how to shut off the ice machine? Yes. Yeah. Don't really want to have to have a, a, shouting, a shouting contest here with the ice machine. So we got every person, all nations, these are the people groups, the cosmos, the inhabited world, to every part of the earth. And we see that early Christians took this seriously. Uh, in the Bible, Paul talked, in Colossians, he talked about proclaiming the gospel to every creature under heaven. And also we see in the record of what they did. You know, Christianity, the first church, started after the ascension of Jesus Christ, started with 120 Jewish disciples in an upper room. They were afraid. And yet when Pentecost came, it exploded. And today, Christianity is the largest religion in the world. Now, we understand everybody who claims to be a Christian is probably not a born-again Christian who really knows the Lord. But just Christianity as a whole, in the most broadest definition, uh, according to the, fi the figures that I could find, 2.4 billion adherents. Okay? That's almost exactly a third of the world population. These might be old, old numbers now that I'm thinking about it. But sometimes within the last 10 years, this is what the figures they had out. That's a lot of people. Okay? So how did we get from, from there, 120 scared Jewish disciples, to today where Christianity is the largest religion in the world? And even in places where the gospel is not very well known, most people have heard the name of Jesus. How did that happen? So let's just kind of take a, a bird's eye view of how this played out in human history. And the first, the first missionaries, of course, were the apostles. Put this in here. World evangelism. We talked about this. Um, man, when was this? Lesson? Good night. All right. We talked about this in lesson two, um, the student volunteer movement. Who remembers, who remembers them? Okay, it was a huge organization. They got high, they got sidetracked eventually by the social gospel, but they had a watchword: "World evangelization in our generation." Was that a biblical motto? Yes. Yeah, we just looked at that. So, world evangelization is what Jesus actually told them to do, and so what we're looking at now is how that has played out in different eras of history. All right, here's a here's a map, and and what's on here is places where, according to early church tradition, the apostles went. And according to tradition, and there's, there's actually conflicting... So you see some of these guys, their names are on like three or four different places because people are not exactly sure where they got to, uh, where they were martyred. But I'm just going to read off a few examples of, of what these men were supposed to have done. So these are the guys who were actually there Definitely, for sure, we know they were there when Jesus gave the Great Commission. All right. Um, now, of course, James, the brother of John, in, in Acts, we find he was martyred in Jerusalem. But Peter was supposed to have been martyred in Rome. Uh, Andrew, his brother, according to tradition, went to Scythia, which is Central Asia, Asia Minor, and Greece. Philip was supposed to have gone to North Africa and Asia Minor. Thomas to Syria and to India, 
And there's actually a, 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 a church in India where they claim Thomas as their founder. Um, Thaddeus, supposed to have gone to Armenia. Matthew to either Persia or Ethiopia. Bartholomew to India, Armenia, Ethiopia, Southern Arabia. James, son of Alphaeus, Syria or Egypt. Simon Zelotes, Persia or Spain or Britain. As I was saying, there's some really conflicting uh, uh, things out there. Matthias, who is selected to replace Judas. Syria or Georgia, the country. Of course, Paul, we know that he went to Asia Minor, Greece, and Rome, probably martyred in Rome. And uh, John the Apostle in Asia Minor and Rome as well. He's the only one, according to tradition, who did not meet a violent death by martyrdom. All these other men... Were killed. There's different legends, once again, and traditions about what happened to them. The point is, these men took it very seriously upon themselves to go out and to fulfill what the Lord had told them to do. And if we look at this, we find out that if we take all these places, they really made an effort to get to the known world of their time. And the, um, the early church continued in their footsteps. It was a time when Christianity was not accepted... Um, uh, early church historian by the name of Tertullian made a famous quote. He said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And that was the truth with many of the, the, the 12 apostles and many of the early Christians. And yet despite that, and despite the fact that there wasn't a lot of organized missions, it just spread by wildfire. And, like wildfire. By AD 200, they reckoned there was... Christians in every province of the Roman Empire. So just word of mouth, people witnessing to other people, it spread throughout the entire Roman Empire. A big change took place um, with the beginning of what we call the Middle Ages. And you see I put some very specific dates up there. 313 to 1517. All right, why these specific dates? Well, in 313, something happened that was called the Edict of Milan. Short story is, Emperor Constantine had a vision of a cross right before a big battle. He saw a cross in the sky, the Latin words, in hoc signo vinci. In this sign, conquer. And he took that as a sign that he needed to convert to Christianity. So he and 3,000 of his soldiers went ahead and got baptized and converted to Christianity. And after he won that battle... Um, they got together and they made this law that gave toleration to Christianity. And within the course of that century, uh, Christianity became the state religion of the Roman Empire. So this was now the, the religion that was mandated by the government. And what that meant is that dictated their approach to missions as well. All right, And so the Roman Catholic idea of missions was to get countries and kings to pledge allegiance to the Christian religion. And so um, here we have a picture. This is the conversion of a man named Clovis. He was the first king of the Franks who became the French. And this is just one example of how they would do things. So he was a successful king, had a big army, and uh, he decided that it would be advantageous to himself to become a Christian. And so here he is. He got baptized. All his men became baptized. Voila, France is now a Christian nation. And this is how they would do. They did it in Germany, 
they'd in all these parts of Europe, and so they slowly converted countries all at once, having the country convert to Christianity. So you have this idea of mass conversions. They would just, you know, sprinkle thousands of people at once, and all right, you are a Christian. So that was their idea of missions. What you end up with is a lot of people who have a name as Christian but don't understand anything about, you know, the Bible or faith or anything like that. And that was what was characteristic of the Middle Ages. It was this top-down, our nation is a Christian, their nation is Christian, the Roman Empire is Christian, therefore we are Christians. Now, I put this as spanning between 313 to 1517. Anyone know what happened in 1517 that was significant? All right, 1517 is commonly regarded as the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. All right, October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door and sparked the Protestant Reformation. And so this was just huge changes throughout Europe as countries began to change from Catholicism to Protestantism. What we did not find is a return to missions. Some have dubbed this the Great Omission. All right? The Reformers changed a lot of things for the good. They started going back to the Bible, back to faith, but they did not go back to missions because they still had this concept of the state church. A historian by the name of Gustav Warnack, he characterized, this is Martin Luther here, he characterized his view as this, where there are Christians, missions are superfluous, and where there are no Christians, they are hopeless. So here's the idea. If you live in a Christian nation, you're already a Christian. We don't need to do anything. And if you don't live in a Christian nation, there's no point in us going there because we'll get killed. You're not going to listen to us. You're a pagan. You're a Muslim. And so they were cut. And to be fair to them, most of the Protestants had their work cut out trying to keep from being conquered by the Catholics. All right? And so during this time, nobody's thinking about evangelizing other parts of the world. They're just, you know, religious wars were racking Europe. And um, they just had this idea of this state church that was really holding them back. So what did it take to reignite that, that spark of missions, to get the work of missions, the work of world evangelization going again? Because it really stagnated during the Middle Ages. Once they had so-called converted a certain part of Europe, you know, they were done. What did it take to get it going again? Let's look at some of these pioneering people who who kind of jump-started the missions movement. The first one I want to look at, he's a man by the name of Count Zinzendorf, Nicholas Ludwig Zinzendorf. And he was the leader of a group, they called them the Moravians, because of the part of Europe they were from, which was Moravia. Something was going on in Christianity at this time, and these people were at the vanguard of it. Uh, they were called pietists. And their idea was that religion should not just be in the head, it should be in the heart as well. And they emphasized a personal experience. And this was starting to happen all over Europe. So whereas before people were content to say, I live in Germany, I'm a Lutheran, I live in Switzerland, I'm a Calvinist, 
These people are em emphasizing, hey, there needs to be a personal experience in your life with God. In England, they called this movement the Evangelical Awakening, and in the U.S. they called it the Great Awakening, which, of course, there was no United States yet. It was still the colonies. But in the early 1700s, a remarkable thing was taking place. And these, these folks, the Moravians, were responsible for getting a lot of that started. You know, some of the big names in the, the Great Awakening was the Wesleys, John and Charles Wesley. Well, John Wesley was an unsaved minister in the Church of England. And he was going as a missionary, ironically, to Savannah, Georgia. He was on a ship. There was this terrible storm. He was, he was afraid he was going to die. And also on that ship was a group of Moravian missionaries. And they had such peace, he couldn't believe it. And this is one of the things that led to his true conversion very soon thereafter. And so these Moravians were, were, were paving the way because they had experienced true revival. It was real in their hearts. And they began to go as missionaries. In fact, of this group, one in 12 of them became a missionary. They went especially to the West Indies. Some of them went to Greenland. And these people were very, very committed. There's a story told of two young Moravian men who were very burdened for an island in the West Indies. And basically the whole thing was owned by this one plantation owner. And these young men, these Moravians, were burdened to reach, to reach out to the slaves. This man was bringing all these slaves from Africa and working them in these sugar plantations. And they wanted to, to go and reach out to them, but the, the plantation owner wouldn't have it. He would not allow them to come. And so they literally sold themselves to this man as slaves so that they could go there. And the story is told that as they were boarding the ship that they were going to take to the West Indies, leaving Europe, the crowd of, of people on the dock seeing them off, they said this, May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. And this was the motto of the Moravians. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. They reasoned Christ had died for these people. We ought to do everything we can to bring them to know Christ. And so the, the, the Moravians, it was a small group, but so many of them went as missionaries. They had a tremendous impact on the church as a whole, but especially on missions. And what we're going to see here is that it's kind of like dominoes. We're going to see how these people affected one another. And I want to focus especially on a few key people in missions, because I find that's much more interesting and it's easier to keep in your head than just, you know, dates, movements, you know, trends. Here's some people to illustrate what was going on. So, so pioneering missionaries, Count Zinzendorf and the Moravians. Well, they influenced somebody in the New World by the name of David Brainerd. All right, David Brainerd was a young man from, from New England in the colonies at that time. And the Lord did a great work in his heart in burdening him to reach out to the American Indians. And of course, back in those days, the frontier was not way out west. The places where he was going was western Massachusetts, New York State, parts of New Jersey. These were still the wild frontier areas. 
and he was going through the woods and preaching through an interpreter to these American Indians. He was known to have an extraordinary prayer life. And he, as he would be out in these woods, he would spend days and days in prayer and fasting for the souls of these Indians. And he went through tremendous hardship, and yet towards the end of that time, the Lord blessed in such an amazing way. Hundreds and even thousands of these American Indians came to know uh, Jesus Christ. But it came at the price of his health. If you look at his dates here, you'll see that he was only 20, let me think, yeah, 29 years old when he passed away. A short life, but he was tremendously influential. And part of that is because he was good friends with Jonathan Edwards. Anyone ever heard of Jonathan Edwards? Very, I mean, probably the most influential minister of maybe in American history, but definitely in colonial history. He preached sinners in the hands of an angry God. He was a main leader in the Great Awakening. Well, as David Brainerd was dying of tuberculosis, he was staying at Jonathan Edwards' house. And so Jonathan Edwards, after David Brainerd passed away, Jonathan Edwards took his journal and published it. He wrote a foreword, talking, you know, giving a basic biography, and he published it. And it was one of the best-selling biographies, certainly in America at that time, but it had a tremendous influence on people both in that day all the way up till now. And if you've looked at the notes, you'll notice, uh, just, just look at the back here. I'm pretty easy on you guys in this course. No syllabus, no pop quizzes, no nothing. But today I'm giving you some recommended reading. All right, this is not assigned or anything. But here's, here's some books, and I'll be referencing these um, and, and talking a little more about that. But there's some tremendous books that help us really understand some of these truths about missions. And the first one on this list is Journal of David Brainerd. Uh, because it's just amazing to read how God used in his life and his burden that he had for these, for these folks. And we'll come to more of those in a moment. So David Brainerd, key figure, short life, but, but he had a tremendous influence. One of the people that he influenced was a man in England by the name of William Carey, who is known as the father of the modern missionary movement. Alright, he was a... He was a, a cobbler by trade. He made and repaired shoes. Uh, but he was also a lay preacher. And this, it's, it's said that he, as he was working leather in his cobbler shop, he actually took some of it and he, he, with his tools he made a world map. He was just fascinated with the world and, and, and the people in it. And he would, he would do everything he could. You know, This is the age of exploration to get information about other parts of the world. As he began to get burdened for the need to, to reach these people and, and speak up about it, he encountered great opposition from the religious leaders of that day. Many of them said, only the apostles were responsible for the Great Commission. That's not our job. Uh, many of them were influenced by Calvinism, and they figured it was just going to happen. If it was going to happen, it was going to happen. A man by the name of Ryland as, as William Carey spoke out in one of these meetings, he said, Young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. So that was the mentality. And so William Carey wrote an essay 
It was called an inquiry into the obligations of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathens. They weren't into short titles back then, apparently. All right? So an inquiry into the obligations of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathens. In other words, should we do something to try to save them? Should we do something to try to convert them? That's what he's saying, to use means. Should we use our money, our voices, our lives? Because people are saying, well, it's just going to happen if it's going to happen. He's saying, should we be doing something about this? And this is an interesting document. You can find it online if you're, if you're interested to read it. But he just refuted the idea. He said, this, it's, we all have this responsibility. The Great Commission's for everybody. And in fact, he, he laid out the population of the world in his day, what religions they were, and just a stirring appeal for Christians to get out there and evangelize the world. And not only that, uh, him and some others founded the first mission society. It was called the Particular Baptist Society for Propagating the Gospel Among the Heathen. Once again, they weren't really into acronyms and you know catchy names back then. But um, this was the first missionary society. And William Carey and some others were the first missionaries sent out under that society. And he served in India starting in 1793, and he served there for 41 years. And in fact, he was instrumental in translating the Bible into 34 different languages. Just a tremendous legacy. And under, under his auspices, many, many uh, missionaries from England began going to India and starting to evangelize there. Here he is working on one of his Bible translations with an with a Indian translation consultant. And William Carey, more than anyone else, was the one who started what they call the great century of missions, the 1800s. Uh, he was just a catalyst behind so much of that. Influenced by David Brainerd, and then he, he puts out this inquiry, and this began to have even greater ripple effects over in the United States of America. This led to something that was known as the Haystack Prayer Meeting in, at Williams College in Williamstown, Massachusetts. These, there was a, at that time, it's a liberal arts college now, but at that time it was a seminary. And in the seminaries in America, people were talking about William Carey, what he was doing, what he was writing, and people were beginning to become aware of their responsibility and the need. And what happened is there was, there was five young men who were uh, out for a walk. They were seminary students. They got caught in a storm, and they took shelter under a haystack. And as they were there, and they were talking about these ideas, they felt very burdened, and they prayed together. And during that prayer time, they all felt like the Lord was calling them to become missionaries and serve on the, serve on the foreign field. I took this picture because this is in western Massachusetts, not far from where my mom's hometown is. And it's hard to see, but in the back left, you can see there's like a, a stone pillar with a globe on top of it. And that is a monument to where this, this prayer meeting is supposed to have happened. And it, it, it's crazy. This is a very liberal college now. This is tucked back in some trees. Nobody even knows it's there. But this was a key place because this is what jump-started the American missions movement. These men began praying. They began visiting other colleges in the area where they encountered a man by the name of Adoniram 
Judson. All right, Adoniram Judson was the son of a, uh, of a minister, a Congregationalist minister there in Massachusetts. Uh, he had a really interesting testimony. He had uh, been just a, a prodigy in his studies, but he had no interest in the Lord, no interest in religion, and he fell in with a group of people who were, were deists. They said, oh, there's a God, but he's not interested in the world. And there was a young man he was very close to by the name of Jacob Eames. And as, as time went on, they kind of went different paths. Adoniram Judson was, he was still far from the Lord, and one night he stopped in an inn and uh, was trying to find a place to stay, couldn't find a place to stay. Finally, the innkeeper said, look, I have one room, but I, I've, I've split it with a curtain, and the man on the other side of the curtain, he's very ill. He's, 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 he may be on his deathbed. It might be very uncomfortable for you to be in there. And Judson, at this point, he said, I just, I just want a bed. I'll be fine. He went up there, and, and it was an awful night. The man on the other side of the room was, was crying out in anguish, um, crying out uh, uh, without hope. And, and, and so finally, Judson was able to get some sleep in the morning, he, he went, he was talking to the innkeeper and found out that the, the man on the other side of the room had actually passed away during the night. And in passing, the innkeeper mentioned his name. It was Jacob Eames, one of Judson's friends who had influenced him to reject God. And this had a tremendous impact on Judson. And so he, began, he went to seminary really before he was sure whether he believed or not. But he became a true believer. And while he was at seminary, he started to hear about William Carey, and he was just down the road from these five men who had been part of the Haystack prayer meeting. And so Judson and some of these other men were instrumental in starting the first American Foreign Mission Society. And him and his wife and another couple were sent as the first American foreign missionaries. They were going to go to, to uh, India to help William Carey. They had a problem. They were Congregationalists. They believed in sprinkling babies. And they knew that uh, Carrie was a Baptist. And so uh, Judson thought that he probably ought to study up on the, on the subject so that he could, you know, uh, debate Carrie on this. And as he studied it, he was like, you know what? <laughs> Carrie is right. And so on the boat to, on his way to India, Judson converted to uh, being a Baptist and got baptized as soon as they got to India. And so they realized that was going to be a little bit of a compromising situation. They actually sent one of their guys back to go and see if the Baptists would support them as missionaries. Anyway, crazy story. And the other thing that happened is they couldn't get into India, and so someone suggested they go over to Burma. And so he was a, uh, the first Western, well, not for the first, but the main Western missionary there in Burma where he served for 37 years. And he went through tremendous difficulty and suffering. Um, six years before he saw his first convert, he was actually imprisoned for 20 months. Um, he, his, his first wife died. He married again. His second wife died. A just tremendous hardship that this man went through. And yet, it's amazing. He translated the Bible into Burmese. He wrote Burmese dictionaries. And uh, when, when my wife and I were living in Knoxville, at, at college there, we were in contact with some Burmese folks who had come as refugees and were staying in Knoxville. Some of them were Christians, and we went to a service with them, and they are still using 
the Burmese Bible and the Burmese Dictionary that Adoniram Judson wrote back in the 1800s. And so he had a tremendous legacy. In fact, today, Burma has the third largest population of Baptists in the world after the U.S. and India. So just a tremendous legacy um, in, the, in the U.S. Uh, another man who had a very far-reaching legacy during this same period of time was uh, Hudson Taylor. No. All right. Uh, Hudson Taylor, he was an English man, and he became burdened for the country of China. And Hudson Taylor pioneered what was known as inland missions. Inland missions. Up to that time, the missionaries had been going to the main coastal areas because that's where Europeans could get to. And Hudson Taylor was so burdened for the millions of people in the interior in China that, that he, he risked everything to get in there and to, to visit these interior areas where Europeans were not yet accepted. And so he pioneered this idea of inland missions. It's not enough just to get to these coastal areas. We've got to get in there and tell the people. Another idea that he pioneered was the idea of faith missions. Hudson Taylor would not announce his needs. Okay, if, if they needed something, they would pray about it. And his mission did not raise funds. They just counted on whatever the Lord sent their way. And so when they would recruit missionaries, they would just recruit them for the mission in faith that God was going to provide for everything. And the amazing thing is they were able to recruit many, many people through the China Inland Mission, begin to spread all throughout the nation of China, and, and have a tremendous impact. Uh, another very interesting thing that Hudson Taylor did, and you may notice in the picture here, is that he adopted native dress. All right, He's wearing a Chinese outfit here. And at that time, I mean, this was taboo. Europeans did not wear the clothes that the natives wore. It was just considered dishonorable, shameful. They didn't do it. But Hudson Taylor realized that if he was going to really reach in there and get to people where they were, he was going to have to make some adjustments. And so he actually, initially, he actually shaved his hair and, and had a long pigtail, dyed his hair black, wore the Chinese clothes just like the Chinese so that he would be able to get in there and speak to people. And so he was the one who was pioneering these ideas of, of adapting to the culture. And we're going to talk about that more later as we start getting some of these more practical ideas of missions. But uh, Hudson Taylor, just a, a remarkable man. One of the books on the requi on required, recommended reading <laughs> is called Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. And, and all the ones I put on there I highly recommend because they've been a great blessing to me personally and I think would help you get a much better vision of missions than I can ever do here as you see just the experiences that these people had. But you see how all of this, it, it's kind of this dominoes from the time of the Great Awakening, the example of David Brainerd, the influence of William Carey, and, and just unleashed a tremendous thing as, as people began going out. A side note here, one of the other books on the recommended reading down at the bottom is called Mountain Rain. It's about a man by the name of James Frazier. And he was also a missionary in China, actually to one of the tribal groups. Not well known, not a terribly influential guy, 
but one of the best biographies of a missionary that I've ever read. Very realistic portrayal of just the challenges and triumphs of missionary life. So I, I recommend that one highly about a man named James Frazier. So these are some of the big names of, of modern missions. A name I meant to put on there that I, I did not, I don't think, uh, is, is David Livingston. Um, he was very well known. You know, he wasn't a terribly effective missionary as far as converting people to Christianity, but he did a tremendous work in opening the continent of Africa up to many other people. And so, uh, you know, a great influence there. So these are some of the names we consider of, of conventional missions as they were beginning to reach out into Africa and different parts of Asia and the South Seas. As we get closer to the 1900s, uh, people were beginning to look to some, some new frontiers. These were kind of the conventional mission fields. What were some of the new frontiers that they had not encountered yet? And one man who brought that to people's attention was a man by the name of Samuel Zwemer. And his big focus was on the Muslim world. All right, He actually lived in Saudi Arabia, what's now Saudi Arabia. He lived in Egypt for 30-something years. And he did not have a lot of fruit from his ministry there. But he did a tremendous job of bringing this to the attention of the church. Uh, you know, so few people had tried to reach out to Muslims. And, and sadly, that's really the case still even today. And so he was just encouraging people. He was actually connected with the student volunteer movement during their heyday. As they were mobilizing college students to go out, he would be often one of these key speakers encouraging people to give their lives to trying to reach Muslims for Christ. Some people dubbed him the apostle uh, to the Muslims. And so just a tremendous influential man uh, who was trying to raise awareness for this for this field. And one of the reasons I highlighted him is because I feel like this is still a, a frontier in missions that we have yet to really cross, is figuring out how to get the gospel to the Muslim world. Another, another big emphasis during the 1900s uh, was pioneered by a man by the name of Cameron Townsend. Cameron Townsend. He went as a missionary um, to Guatemala. And one of the jobs he had down there was he would carry and sell Spanish Bibles and distribute Spanish Bibles. And so he started in the cities. He began to go into the back country, into the mountains. And after a little while, he realized that the people he was around didn't actually speak Spanish. They spoke Cachiquel, uh, which we might know as Mayan. Okay, It's a Mayan language. And it's funny because I had a... A similar experience when I worked for a lawn mowing company in Knoxville, Tennessee. You know, I, I joined this company. A lot of these guys are, are like Hispanics. They're from Guatemala. And uh, I was like, hey, this would be great. I'll get a chance to bone up on my Spanish. And I go in there and none of these guys speak Spanish. You know, they're on the phone with each other. I'm like, what in the world? And it turns out this is what they were speaking. They were like these Mayan type things. And so Cameron Townsend, he's like, you know, what good is this Spanish Bible doing these people can't read it and they can't really understand it. They know a little bit of Spanish, but that's not really their main language. And so he got really serious about the idea of scripture translation, trying to get the Bible into the heart language of people around the world. 
And so he was used to start both Wycliffe Bible Translators, which you may have heard of before, and also SIL, the Summer Institute of Linguistics. And this was just really influential in the 1900s in getting people equipped to go out and translate the Bible. And that's another emphasis that is, is still being maintained today, and it's an important emphasis. And, and even in our, our Baptist, independent Baptist movement, there are now schools and, and, and missionaries, and I think we support some, who are involved with this idea of Bible translation. The Overtons, are they not? Yes. Um, yeah, they're in India. And I know, so there's others. So this is, a, this is still a, a kind of a frontier. This is still a big push in missions today, is, is Bible translation. Another familiar name as we think of missions, Jim Elliott. And he was part of this push to get to unreached people groups. All right, he started in uh, Ecuador working with um, groups that had been previously reached, doing church work among them. Of course, he's famous for his quote, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And he lived out those words. He was just shy of his 30th birthday uh, when him and four other men uh, went out into the jungles to try to reach the Alka tribe, now called the Waodani tribe. It was an unreached people group. They had been uncontacted. They didn't have the scripture. They didn't have the gospel. And these men were burdened to get that to them. And, of course, it, was, it, it made the news when they were martyred by a group of these Indians and amazingly, his wife, Elizabeth Elliot, went back and eventually went and lived with this tribe. And today, many of them know the Lord. And so, uh, once again, this emphasis on unreached people groups, people who don't have the gospel yet. A big emphasis, a big frontier. And that's what I want to come to now. What's ahead of us today? So he, here's the history. You know, we see from the time that Jesus gave the Great Commission, the apostles started going out. We have a long period where not a lot was going on. And in the last few centuries, I mean, just really exploded as the gospel has gone literally all over the world. Is there still anything left for us to do? You know, what do we need to do? What does it mean, world evangelization? And, and as, I, as I think, and, and, and from what I've read, I think there's a few main focuses that we can still have in missions. Anybody know what this is? A map of. The 1040 window. All right, This is a term that gets thrown around a lot. Not always a clear definition. But the 1040 window, so this box here, all right, this is the eastern hemisphere. This box is between 10 degrees north of the equator and 40 degrees north of the equator. Not everyone defines this exactly the same way, but it definitely includes North Africa, the Middle East, Central Asia, Southeast, South Asia, and then Southeast and East Asia. And depending on how you, how you decide the boundaries of this, we're talking 55 to 70 countries here that are the most unreached in the world. They're all concentrated in this area. Over 8,000 people groups, separate people groups. Now, some of these are very small tribes. Some of these are very large people groups with millions and millions and millions of people. 
And when we talk about a people group, we're talking about a, a, a particular ethnicity, a group of people. They speak the same language. They share the same culture. Uh, where we live in Cambodia, there's a few different people groups, and the main one is the Khmer people. And so wherever you go and there's Khmer people, they share the same culture, same religion, same language. There's other villages that belong to the Cham people, and they have a different language and a different culture. And so we're talking about people groups here. And just a tremendous number of people groups here in this 1040 window. The figures I'm giving to you include Indonesia, by the way, which is not highlighted in this map, but which some people include in this. So with all that counted in, this is about two-thirds of the world's population that lives in these nations that make up the 1040 window. All of the great non-Christian religions are centered in this area. Islam, Buddhism, and Hinduism. The vast majority of people who adhere to these three religions live right here in this 1040 window. And so, this to me seems like where our focus needs to be in missions today. There's still a tremendous amount of work to do. Um, according to figures I saw, and this is also listed on your um, recommended reading, joshuaproject.net. If you're interested in following up on any of this, they have great information about different people groups. Um, I mean, you can look at a country see which people groups are there, uh, you know, how many of them have been reached, how many of them have not been reached. And so um, this is an area where there's, there's so many of these uh, unreached people groups that still need the gospel. In many cases um, that have never have the gospel, have no, belie no known believers in them. And so this is an opportunity we have to, to be deliberate as we try to reach out and evangelize the world. Another big emphasis that's going on right now is um, the idea of, of re-evangelizing the post-Christian West. Uh, figures that I've seen uh, say that close to half of people in Europe they say they're unaffiliated with any religion whatsoever. And many of the people even who claim Christianity are just very nominal. They're Christians by name, they were born in a certain country. This is the state religion. That's what they identify as. And so there's still a great need as well. This here, I don't know how well this is going to show up. Okay, this, I, I, I found this. This is a really helpful graphic in helping us envision the state of the world today. And so, like I said, it's, it's a little unclear. So let me kind of explain what we're seeing here. So this red here. And I'm going to ask my wife to help me if I get any colors wrong. I'm colorblind, so this is not my forte. All right. So what looks to be red to me, um, this stands for true Christians. All right. And these different slices of the pie represent different religious groups. So this is Christianity. This is Muslims, tribal religion, Hindus, Chinese folk religion, Buddhists, non-religious, and other. All right. So they reckon... Of people who claim to be Christians, these are people who are true, dedicated Christians who can be involved in the work of missions. All right, and, and even in people groups that identify as these different religions, there are Christians. All right, the light yellow represents nominal Christians, people who name the name, but 
probably need to be born again themselves. All right? So we see a lot of those, of course, in the Christian group, some even perhaps in other people groups. All right? This green, is that green? Okay. Stands for non-Christians who are in people groups who have the gospel. Non-Christians in people groups who have the gospel. For example, an American who is not a believer. They're not Christians, but they live in a people group that has the gospel. Okay? So they, they categorize different people groups as reached or unreached. So, uh, you know, Mexico might be another example. You know, there are many people in Mexico, perhaps who are not saved, but they live in a culture where there are churches and there is gospel. And finally, the, the orange, is that what that is? All right. Represents non-Christians in unreached people groups. So these are people who are not believers and they live in people groups who, that are unreached. They don't have believers there they don't have churches in them. I know this is a lot of information. The main thing I want us to take away from this is to see the number of people who are still non-Christians in unreached people groups. And this is something that we can try to focus on as, as Christians and in our, our missions praying, our missions giving, our missions sending, is trying to figure out a way to mobilize both Western missionaries and national missionaries to get to these people groups that do not have the gospel. And so there's still a great need in this world for cross-cultural missions. We're going to talk about that more later on too, but the idea that somebody goes from one culture to another, like all these people we talked about, Adoniram Judson, David Brainerd, Hudson Taylor, they left their own culture, went to another culture, because something had to be started there. And once it gets started, those people can start to take it upon themselves to evangelize their own people. But somebody's got to get in there and get it started. And so this is just a, a, a situation of the world as we see it today. So what are some takeaways? What are some things that we can learn from missions history? The first thing is I think we can be thankful. The gospel got to us. 2,000 years later, through all those twists and turns, we were evangelized and we are believers. So we can be very thankful for the way that God's great commission has been fulfilled thus far and getting as far to us. Another thing I think we can take away is this idea of, of focusing on these people groups. You know, we, we talked about the mandate for world evangelism when we started, starting from specific, the individuals, to the people groups, to the entire inhabited world. And as individuals, we have to focus on that first one, every creature, right? We can only evangelize people one at a time. And that's what the Lord has given us to do. But as a church, and as we think strategically about missions, I, I believe that focusing on these people groups is a, is a great way to be strategic in the way that we're trying to get the gospel out and, and see the maximum result from it. The final thing I have on here 
This is a quote from E.M. Bounds. God's method is a man. And I put a picture of a woman on here just so we don't get confused about what, what we're meaning by that. The idea is God wants to use people. When God wants to reach a people group, He sends somebody there. And what we see, what I see when we look at, at missions history is we see a, a whole range of people that God has used who were not only used right in the place where God sent them to, like Burma or China or New Jersey, but who also were used to influence the next generation of gospel proclaimers. In the picture here is a woman by the name of Amy Carmichael, who had nothing notable to herself. She grew up in an era when women were not looked upon highly, and yet she went to India and had a tremendous impact reaching Indian women and young people. And so God's method is a man. God wants to use people today. And as we look through history, we find out God doesn't use movements. He uses people. And I believe the Lord wants to use each one of us and, and as together as a church to, to be deliberate and strategic about trying to continue to evangelize the world, even in our own generation. I hope that you will take time to look over this uh, recommended reading that I've put here. I think it will help you. Um, you know, missionary biographies can be very spiritually challenging. And so... This is not an exhaustive list. There's other ones. If you saw one of the people on this list, you said, hey, I don't see a book about this person, um, I might be able to recommend you to one. But I put these ones down because these are ones that are especially impactful. Um, Shadow of the Almighty, I didn't mention that one yet. Biography of Jim Elliott. And this other one here, Bruchko, uh, it's about, written by a man by the name of Bruce Olson. Not, not a terribly well-known or influential person, but it's a great missionary story. Uh, about a man who just went out on faith and ended up in the backside of a jungle. You've, you've read it? I've read that one. Yeah, okay. I got it at uh, Crown College. Okay, yeah, it's a great read. And so um, if you're not into, you know, dense, you know, historical type stuff, you'll enjoy reading Bruchko, I promise. And then joshuaproject.net, if you want to do some more research about situation of the gospel in different parts of the world, different people groups, that's a great resource as well. All right. Um, well, this is telling me I've been recording for 55 minutes. That's not right, is it? Is it? All right. Well, I apologize. <laughs> um, uh, any questions, comments about uh, the material that we've gone over this evening? You know, I once heard a, a story of the Moravians that they're dedication and zeal was so great that they would carry their personal goods in a coffin, and that's what they would load onto the house holding baggage, that's what it was, yeah. on the ship. And they expected to die in field in that coffin, be buried in a coffin. Well, it, it is, it's remarkable, you know, for me to think about today, you know, I go to the mission field, it's sad, but I can buy a plane ticket back and have a reasonable, you know, expectation that every few years I'll be able to see my family. But yeah, these guys didn't expect to come back. And even, even 
in the 1800s, you know, some of these missionaries, you know, they went over and they were just there. That was where they spent the rest of their life, or they would come back one time. And, and so just the, the level of commitment that these folks had is, is really challenging. And that's why I feel like it can be so helpful to, to read these biographies. And the Lord can use their testimony to be a challenge to us, uh, just to see what the Lord did with their lives. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, please visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We encourage you to share this message with others. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened and God's word has had an impact on your life as together we strive to show forth the path of life. Press on.